0: Probably at no other time in our lifetime, we see the living out of the text before us in Romans chapter 1, and I want you to turn there, Romans 1, and it is a text regarding homosexuality. With all the publicity related to same-sex marriage within the United States today, Romans 1 is all the more crucial for us to understand. If you hear many, many people speak on television and radio talk shows, you will hear them increasingly say things like, If two people of the same sex want to marry each other, who is to say this is morally wrong? God does. Listen to the Apostle Paul address the issue in Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been clearly made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen." For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. As I said to you last time, Paul gives us three R's in this text regarding the wrath of God. One, the revelation of the wrath of God, verse 18 Two, the reasons for the wrath of God, verses 19 to 23. And thirdly, the results of the wrath of God in verses 24 to 32. Now last Lord's Day, we discovered both the revelation of the wrath of God in verse 18 and also the reasons for the wrath of God in verses 19 to 23. Let me briefly review what we learned last time about these important things. I said to you last time that Paul sets out to say that he is unashamed about the gospel. He says so in verse 16. And he says so because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the power of God is revealed. It is revealed. And also the righteousness of God is revealed. And so the power and the righteousness of God is revealed in the very salvation that has been granted to everyone who believes. That's the good news. Unfortunately, the bad news... Is also revealed and it is revealed according to verse 18 by the cataclysmic wrath of God. And it is a revelation. God reveals to us that heaven's onslaught will come against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men according to verse 18. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You remember I said to you that truth by way of an analogy could be like a box. And unrighteous, ungodly men, as it were, sit on the box attempting to keep the lid on truth. That is, they suppress the truth. They try to keep a lid on the box so that truth cannot come out. What is the truth? It's the truth about God, the Creator. It's the truth about what can be known about God. And frankly, the whole world, the whole created order is plainly manifest to every single person in the universe. That's what verse 19 says. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Every man, woman, and child from Adam onward knows about God. That doesn't mean that every single person knows the intimacy of God. It doesn't mean that we have an intimate relationship with God, unregenerate man. It just means that we know something about God. It's plain that God exists, in other words. How so? Verse 20. For His invisible attributes have become visible through what means? Creation. Namely, His eternal power. When you look at creation, you can see that God is powerful. Who flung the world in existence? God. This powerful, creative force we call God, the almighty person called God. And we can even know something of His divine nature. He has put this world and all therein into existence. Paul says it has been clearly perceived. There is no getting around the fact that this world can be clearly perceived to have come from the very person of God. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so much so, Paul says, that man is without excuse. No one person can stand on the day of judgment and say, I just didn't have enough light if you if you could just give me a little bit more information I would acknowledge your existence no they are without excuse in fact Paul goes on to say in verse 21 they had so much light they had so much revelation They had so much knowledge that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They had so much revelation, they had so much knowledge that they could have even thanked and honored God for His creative power and presence. But they didn't do so. They didn't honor Him as God, and they didn't give thanks to Him. In fact, they went the opposite direction. Instead of wanting to find out more about Him, instead of wanting to respond to the light that they had, instead of a request to say, God... If if this is who you are, I want to know more about you. I want to respond to the light that I have about you. I want to discover more of this eternal power. I want to see more of this visibility of these invisible attributes about who you are. I want to know more of you. I want to come into more of this intimate relationship with you. I want to have this intimacy with you. Instead... The Bible proclaims that they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is this is the very opposite of evolution. This is devolution. Instead of going upward in advancement, it is a spiraling downward Indeed, he says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, morons. That's the very word from which our word in English, morons, comes, moronic, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, this grand God God. This immortal God, this One who lives forever, this One who is to be praised and honored and glorified and exalted for images resembling mortal man. As I said to you last time, the oft-quoted phrase, God created man in His own image and man turned around and returned the favor resembling mortal man, and even what's worse, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Incredible. And that's what we learned last time. The revelation of the wrath of God against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men produced a number of reasons why God set... His wrath against mankind. It's, it's as almost as though Paul were giving us a courtroom scene, as I said. And he's marshalling all this, this evidence in this courtroom against mankind's condemnation. And he's setting up all of this evidence and he's, he's nailing the coffin shut in mankind's judgment. And this morning we come now to the results of the wrath of God in verses 24 to 32. And I want to specifically zero in this morning on verses 24 to 27, which address this very matter of homosexuality that we are seeing so much debate about in our society. And I want you to notice The three similar ideas in which Paul uses the word exchange. Do you see the word? He uses it in verses 23, 25, and 26. Exchange, exchange, exchange. And notice also that Paul uses the phrase, God gave them up. In three verses. Verses 24, God gave them up. 26, God gave them up. And verse 28, God gave them up. Very important. Very important. These are important Pauline markers which signal both what man has done in exchanging their God-given gifts for utter sinfulness. And then as a result, God has said three times to give them up to their own devices. This is important to understand when we begin to discuss the matter of God's perspective on homosexuality and His judgment upon it. For when God's glory is exchanged for man's poor, sinful substitute, God will respond by giving men up to their own idolatrous actions and then to degenerate sexual perversion. Instead of man giving honor to God, God responds by then giving men dishonor even in their own bodies. You remember that I said to you last time, this whole passage is like a a courtroom with Paul bringing God's case against mankind and his utter sinfulness. And after these reasons, now he's giving the result. Now we're in the sentencing phase. It's a divine verdict. And that's why he uses that word, therefore, in verse 24. Therefore. This is the verdict, folks. We're past the reasons and now we're in the sentencing. Therefore. This is chilling. Therefore. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie. Not a lie, definite article. The lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing Paul says that is the result of God's wrath against unrighteousness and ungodliness of men is God's giving men over to sexual sin. First sentence of condemnation. This is the sentencing phase. This is the verdict. And contrary to what is common parlance today, this isn't an alternative lifestyle. This isn't a civil right. This is God giving sinful man up to his own impure lifestyle. If you follow the flow of Paul's argument here, this is a sentence This is a verdict. This is what God is saying He's giving man up to, over to. This is an abandonment by God. This is what God is giving man over to, to His own devices. Notice He says it is the passions of their hearts. It's a divine judgment, but it's also flowing out from human volition. It's God giving them over to what they want to do. That's the point. It's almost as though Paul could say it like this in our language. You want to do that? You want to be involved in that sin? Have at it. I give you over to it. Do we see that happening in our world? That is precisely what is going on. God is bringing a divine judgment upon man's volitional actions. Now, this is not God condemning man beyond or above his own choice in the matter. It's God responding to what man is otherwise choosing to do in his sin. This is God responding to what man is otherwise choosing to do in his sinfulness. This is why Paul is saying here, Therefore, God gave them up. The commentator Godet once wrote this, He, God, ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. But Douglas Moo says you must go further than this statement if you're going to be true to the exegesis of the text. He writes, God does not simply let the boat go, He gives it a push downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. Yes, it's true. Gets back to that cycle of devolution we talked about last week. Man is spiraling downward more deeply into his sin and God says, I turn you over to that. And that's what we see in our world. Would some of you older saints have ever said in your wildest expectation, your wildest thoughts that people would be saying on your television screen, that same-sex marriage would be a reality in our land? Never. But what kind of sexual sin is Paul describing here in verse 24? Well, he doesn't get to homosexuality quite yet. He simply says impurity here in verse 24. He's describing a resultant impurity, but right now he just says the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He's going to get to homosexuality later. But right now, he just sort of gives us the heading at the top of the list. He just says impurity. And he sort of gives us a a representative word. He simply says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And that's just a... A sort of generic word, an elastic word that talks about general sexual sin. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 and we'll see this elastic word that Paul uses. At this point, he just sort of gives us a a generic word about sexual sin. Sin sexually in general. In Romans 6.19, he says, I am speaking in human terms. Because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. That word impurity there is that same word. He's saying don't present your members, your body, what you do with your body as slaves to impurity, to sexual sin. Don't do that. Present your body rather as a slave to righteousness, something that leads to your spiritual sanctification. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. Second Corinthians 12:21. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity. That's that general word. So when Paul uses this particular phrase, and he uses it also in Galatians 5.19, just a general word, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity. It's just a a general word. It's talking about generic sexual sin. And he's going to get to the idea of homosexuality. But right now, in Romans 1, he's simply saying, I want you to know that this is an issue of the generic man. God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to sexual sin, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And he may be talking generically here because he may just be talking about generalized idolatry. If you look in your Old Testament and if you study even the ancient fertility cults that were extant at that time, you understand that there were people... Groups, even very religious groups, who were involved in idolatry, and oftentimes their idolatry included much sexual sin. I mentioned the concept of fertility cults. And they thought that in these fertility cults, that if you had rampant sexual immorality, especially the sexual immorality men with women, that you you could gain from that much sexual power, vitality, strength. The more conquests, the more vitality, the more strength. So it could be that the idea of idolatry was very much linked with the idea of impurity. So it could be talking here simply about a generic kind of impurity, but also the kinds of impurity that was linked to idolatry. So he says, I want you to notice this idolatry of man that's the kind of devolution in society that's connected with impurity. And the further you move away from God as creator, the further you move away from God as creator, God says you will be given up in the lusts of your heart to impurity to the dishonoring of your bodies among yourselves. Do you remember at the foot of the mountain when Moses was going up to meet with God and while he was meeting with God God said to him Moses, do you hear what's happening down below? And there was this ruckus down below. You remember Aaron was assembling the golden calf? And if you read the text, you'll find out that there was a party going on below. And involved in much of the partying for the people, even the people of God, was sexual immorality, impurity. And that's usually part and parcel of what's happening with idolatry. With the worship of that which is the creature and not the creator. You trace religion, the religion of man, and what you will often find with the worship of creatures, whether it's man setting up his own idols, or the worship of birds, or animals, or reptiles. You look in Greek mythology, you look almost in any cult, any group, and you'll find sexual immorality involved. I remember almost 20 years ago when I was ministering in California that I was involved specifically in trying to counsel some people in Florida by telephone, and this cult group working with a person who was involved in a personality cult, and this man who was heading up this cult was systematically sleeping around with every female within the group. And their entire lives were all messed up because of his immorality with all of the women in the group. And just recently when I went down to Jupiter, Florida to minister, I did a men's retreat and then I preached in the church on a Sunday evening and a couple came up to me afterwards and said, we are friends of a couple who were involved in that group several years ago and we also counseled this particular couple and they are still confused and hurt over that situation and that was almost 20 years ago and they were thanking me for being involved in that almost 20 years ago and this couple is still smarting and hurting and confused based upon that situation and this person is still they said involved in manipulating people for the sake of sexual gain. This is still going on. People are still lusting in their hearts involved in impurity. This is what Paul is saying about people who are morally depraved. And there's a a circle, there's a cycle here. Look back at verse 25. Notice what, or excuse me, look back at verse 22. Notice what it says. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They are exchanging God for the sake of these things that aren't God. God. And verse 26 goes on to say, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 24, He gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And God did that, He says, because verse 23 says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for these images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, God gave men over "...to dishonored sexual perversion because they did not honor Him as God, but instead worshipped the creation rather than the Creator." Their idolatry led to sexual perversion. It's just this vicious cycle in these verses. Why? Because they worship themselves or the creation in general and not the Creator, and therefore God gives them over to their own devices, including their own sinful passions." which in turn causes them to attempt to exchange the worship of something, which in in turn turns out to be their own idol lusts, which is the ultimate lie. You see, beloved, everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. Nobody worships nothing. Everybody worships something. And what you ultimately worship will either be yourself or God or something else. That's by the way why Paul says here when he contrasts the Creator God against the lie. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He can't even put in one sentence a reference to the true Creator without breaking out in a doxological praise. He can't even put in a sentence a reference to the true Creator without breaking out into a praise to the true God when contrasted with the lie. By the way, there's a definite article there for the lie. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie. What is the lie? Anything that isn't true about God. Anything that isn't true about God. Specifically this. Exchanging the truth about God as the true Creator. Anything about God that isn't true about Him as the Creator God. The Sovereign God. I think there might even be here a, an implicit Reference, even in our own day, by secondary application, to the sinful thought of evolution. Evolution, obviously, is to be ruled out here. Because evolution says that over, they don't even say millions now, they say billions of years. The the earth, the created order, has evolved into being. Not so. God... Created the earth by divine fiat. He created the, the earth at a moment in time. Six literal twenty-four hour days. That's how God did it. And on the seventh day he rested, not because he was tired. Because that's what he wanted to do. Set a pattern. Evolution is out. By the way, even secular scientists today, people who who don't even know Jesus Christ, who don't even love God, are jumping off the ship of evolution just before it crashes. There's a movement today called intelligent design, where even people who don't love God or aren't even involved in Christianity are saying, well, maybe there's something to this intelligent design of the universe. Maybe there's something involved in there being a design to this universe that's beyond just random chance, time plus chance plus nothing. Maybe there is something to this, and these, some of these aren't even Christians. Now, people have asked me, well, there are a boatload of Christians who have jumped into this and said, intelligent design might get us closer in our discussions with unbelievers, especially unbelievers who are jumping onto the ship of intelligent design. Maybe Christians who believe in intelligent design theory can get together with unbelievers and develop common ground and work together with them who believe in intelligent design, and and maybe there can be an, an evangelistic platform. I don't agree with that. For some of the very same reasons that I mentioned last week. I don't believe that somebody who affirms intelligent design as a theory of the origins of the universe are any closer to becoming Christians. Why? Because the Bible already says here that they already believe in God. A God. Maybe not the God of the Bible, but it says here they're already without excuse. I don't believe we have to reason somebody into the kingdom. I don't think we have to get somebody on some kind of common ground about intelligent design, about affirming that a God designed the universe. The Bible already says that by divine power, through His divine nature, the created order has been clearly perceived by man ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been clearly made so that they are without excuse. You know what I say about the intelligent design movement? Where have you been? Where have you been? I read that in Romans 1 the first day I was a Christian. It's already here. It's like the book that I read from Robert Jastrow, the astrophysicist. ...who wrote that all of these people were trying to figure out all of the origins of the universe. All of these groups of very scholarly people. And he used the analogy of all these people climbing up this really high cliff of a mountain. He gave all of these, these thrilling accounts of all of these erudite people. And they were climbing, and these groups were climbing, and these groups were climbing... And they almost all got to the top. And it took all these years. And they almost all made it. And when they almost got all the way to the top, and they peered over the, the edge, and that they found out there were theologians there from millennia. What's the point? Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God. We already know the truth. And the truth is, ever since the creation of the world, God is there. The problem is not the affirmation that God is the creator of the universe. The affirmation is not a theory about intelligent design. The issue we have to grapple with is our sin. It's a moral problem. Not an intelligence issue. It's not a design issue. It's a moral issue. That's what's going on here. What we've done, according to verse 25, is that we have exchanged the truth about God for the lie. That's a garden issue. It's a satanic bait and switch. It's what Satan did with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was the lie. And the lie has been perpetrated ever since then. And we've worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator ever since. Remember, we're talking about something that one is doing in order to rightly worship God and give Him glory as the Creator of our bodies for His honor. Someone has rightly said, Man has mocked the honor of God by deifying the bodies of creatures erected into idols. God therefore abandons man to passions which dishonor his own body. It's true. We just have had the thing totally reversed. That's why I love 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Thessalonian Christians. They turned to God From idols to serve the living and true God. See, they got it right by God's grace. Romans 1, they turned from God to idols. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What sinful man has done is to buy the lie. To buy the lie. They've reversed the created order of things. And verses 26 and 27. This is the homosexual lie. Listen to what it says. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Boy, does our culture need a dose of this. Paul literally says, They're female ones. As he begins to delineate exactly what kind of sexual perversion he's referring to when he's talking about man's idolatry and his downward spiral into sinful rebellion. What does he mean when he's stating these female ones are exchanging natural relations? Well, whatever he's alluding to here, he's definitely saying that it's not God's original design. It's not God's original design in the creation of male and female. And can you see already that creation's all over this text? Creation's all over this text. I hear people, I've read books ad infinitum ad nauseum on the issue of homosexuality. And what people who advocate, even within Christendom, homosexual behavior, they say, well, what Paul is doing here is he's not outlawing homosexuality per se, What he's outlawing here is not monogamous homosexual relations. What he's outlawing is promiscuous homosexuality in this rampant, wanton homosexual relationships where people just go from one homosexual relationship to another. That's what he's against. That's what he's arguing against. Not monogamous homosexual relationships where you find as a homosexual another homosexual person and you commit yourself as two homosexual people to each other like a man and a woman would to each other. That's okay. That's not what Paul is saying. Creation says the natural order of things is for a man and a woman to come together as male and female. That's what Paul is referring to here. A man and a man or a woman and a woman is outlawed in this text. If, in fact, it were different, it would make this unnatural. It isn't natural. It isn't right. It isn't best. It isn't proper. And that's what he's referring to, of course. To lesbianism. Female homosexuality. That's the first reference that he gives here. Their women exchanged natural. Relations for those that are contrary to nature. That's an explicit reference to sexual relations. And then he flips to the male side. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. You know, one reason why this is true is because it was universally understood that within Judaism, homosexuality was considered a sexual perversion of the worst order. There was simply no way around Paul's description here, even within Judaism, to say nothing of the actual words that he's using here in this text. He's expressing the created order, the natural expression of sexual love, which should occur in the marriage relationship. In other words, what we shockingly need to reinforce today about marriage is that it is a relationship between a man and a woman for life. And so as not to be understood about the sexes, Paul does something that nails it down in this text. He could have used the normal word for woman and for man, gune or aner, but he doesn't. Instead, he uses Thelus and Arsene, which is translated female and male. Not just man and woman, but female and male. Maybe because he's referring to the Septuagint use of Genesis 1.27, male and female created he them. In other words, he is reinforcing the very idea that in the beginning, Way back to the very beginning, Genesis 1.27, male and female did God create. It's a natural part of the very fabric of the universe. God didn't design Adam and Steve. He created Adam and Eve. He gave them as male and female to be together together for life and notice also here in verse 27 homosexuality is a violation of the nature of the created order because one man gave up natural relations with women do you see that word natural relations no way around it natural relations Two, consumed with passion for one another that's a strong word there folks strong word consumed or burned in their lust for one another, and three, committing shameless acts with men. No matter what the strong homosexual lobby does, you cannot get around the simple, straightforward reading of this text, lesbianism and homosexuality is against God's created order, it isn't natural, It is the consummation of an unbridled passion of lust. It is a shameless, indecent act. And therefore, so called same sex marriage is biblically prohibited by God's holy word. And the consequence, according to Paul at the end of verse 27, as we close, is that they will receive in themselves the due penalty of their error. It's frightening. This is the wrath of God. What does this mean, the due penalty of their error? Well, if you were living in the old economy, if I were preaching this message and we were living in the Old Testament era, what would the due penalty of the error mean? Stoning to death. You would be taken and you would be stoned to death. That would be the due penalty of your error. And we don't need to mince words about what the word error would mean. It wouldn't just be mistake, it wouldn't just be problem, error would mean fatal error. It would be tragic. Would it be, in our culture, this due penalty, as some might say, AIDS, sexually transmitted disease? No, not necessarily. It's not a quid pro quo. Because, of course, there are people who aren't homosexuals who have AIDS. There aren't people who are homosexuals who have sexually transmitted diseases. It's not a tit for tat. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not just this for that. It's it's not that. It could be in addition to to the due penalty, AIDS-related issues, STDs. It could be in addition to those things. But it isn't just that. No, I think Paul simply means that the sexual perversion and the judgment upon it itself is the due penalty. Why? Because God gave them over to that sexual perversion. Which means what? We need to have compassion on people who have been abandoned to sexual perversion. It's judgment itself. It's penalty itself. It's something for which we need to have great compassion. You say, but but that's not the way they think of it. I know. I know that. It's something that they think they're rejoicing in. I know that. But it won't be at the end. And we need to live in light of the end, don't we? We need to have compassion, care, concern. You say, well, what, what is the most ultimate devastating penalty of all? Well, what's the, the most ultimate consequence of this sin? To be shut out of the kingdom of God forever. And what must we do to work the works of God while it is day, to witness to them, to speak to them, to love them? We should be speaking with love and concern and compassion, especially to those who have received an additional penalty for their error, and that is AIDS, that is sexually transmitted diseases, because now they're they're beginning to learn, maybe for some of them for the first time, that The consequences of their sin has brought them to a place of recognizing their error. I'll never forget the opportunity that I had with John MacArthur to visit a man who came to Grace Church, who was a homosexual, and he stood in the back of the church service one Sunday morning because he was struggling with his life as a homosexual, and someone told him, and I don't know who and how and what the circumstances were, but he was struggling and someone in the homosexual community of West Hollywood told him, you need to go to Grace Community Church, they'll help you. And So he showed up at the back of the service and just as we do, we stood for the reading of God's word and John that morning I think read Psalm 73. It speaks there I believe of someone who is relieved of their prisoner status. And he likened that to his own prisoner status spiritually. And we began talking with him and we began reaching out to him and ultimately he came to Christ and he had many, many struggles in his life to break away from that strong, strong, debilitating West Hollywood homosexual lobby. And right up until the end he had people coming to his hospital room as he was laying there dying of AIDS, trying to pull him back into that lifestyle. And I remember very vividly standing outside his hospital room as John MacArthur went in and talked with him, and it was only a few days before his death, and how we reached out to him and talked with him and counseled with him and prayed with him. And how he was so appreciative of all of the things that we had done for him. And I remember going to his apartment and sitting with him and talking with him and counseling with him about how he could separate himself from the person who was once his lover. We need to have compassion on these folks. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me as we close to 1 Corinthians 6. We don't want to be like what was said of ancient Ephraim of old, of which it is said by God in Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. We instead want it to be said of many of these who struggle with this sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice this, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, could it be? Could it be that there would be some in our midst who were homosexuals in the past tense? Right now, I'm talking with someone who is battling with homosexuality right now. And I talk with that someone in my office and he is right in the midst of the battle. And I'm praying, hoping, believing that God may deliver such a one out of the clutches of Satan so that God will not Abandon Him. So that I could say, and such were some of you. The compassion of Christ. Let's reach out to some of these dear brothers and sisters with the love of Christ. Let's pray together. Our God, we would love nothing better than to have some of these become our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we ask that they would be delivered. This sin, heinous as it is, is not something for which they cannot be delivered. And even though in the present condition of the practice of such a thing, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul rejoicingly said of the Corinthians, and we can rejoicingly say to these, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. Lord, we know in this text of 1 Corinthians 6, it rolls right into this famous passage, Flee. Sexual immorality. And Lord, we know that as the future comes to us quickly, your wrath, as true and as devastating and as punishing as it will be, rests now. as the Apostle John tells us, for those who walk in disobedience. And I pray that there is no one here who presently walks in darkness, reserved for judgment in the great day. Lord, we are faithful to the text that speaks both of mercy and wrath. May you give us one and deliver us from the other. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.